This is a Culture Inject production. The Nevers Podcast presents In Conversation With Today, we're pleased to welcome Oscar shortlisted artist Johnny Han to the podcast. Johnny is a director and VFX supervisor whose credits include Pacific Rim, One Night in Miami, 2012, and the television series Heroes. He's currently serving as the VFX supervisor for HBO's The Nevers. Thank you for joining me today on The Nevers Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So uh, just to kind of start off at ground level, what is the role of a VFX supervisor and like how do you inhabit it? The VFX supervisor works directly with all the key creatives, the director, the writers, uh, the director of photography, um, and even interfaces with wardrobe and makeup and stunts basically to help fulfill the vision, um, the collective vision, and um, using, for us, using the tools that we have in our pockets to um, help bring that to life. Um, So, you know, if it's a situation where the director has a specific idea of, um, you know, we want to see a rainy London street but um, it's in a location we will never be able to go to or a, uh, you know, a, a creature that doesn't exist. You know, there's lots of ways in the cinematic toolkit. It could be a, a puppet. It could be a person in heavy makeup, you know, and in uh, great special effects makeup. Um, or it could be visual effects. And visual effects refers to anything that... Um, we further manipulate after it's been filmed. Well, so just out of curiosity, because I'm a total layman, what is the distinct? So the distinction between special effects and visual effects. So with visual effects, you're kind of working with computers and you're uh, changing things digitally, right? So the the difference between special effects and visual effects is um, a special effect is something that happens live in camera and is pretty much what it is. So whether that's, um, you know, a a live fire that's actually burning, that someone is actually in front of and actually getting warm from it, um, or some sparks going off or uh, rocks collapsing or glass shattering, anything that um, tangibly happens on set is a special effect. A visual effect is when we plan for that event to happen, like for a glass pane to break, but we may actually shoot it without glass so that in post-production, we digitally put in glass that breaks. So it's anything where it goes beyond what we do on set and have to further uh, further add to in the post-process. So that could be you know, adding an explosion that was way too big to do for real, um, adding, uh, um, you know, some uh, something so large or um, uh, so not anything you can't actually do for real. 
Right. So as someone in the domain of visual effects, are you kind of a minimalist where you're like, uh, it, it feels better as much as we can do practically, I'm cool with that? Or do you, do you feel like what you can do by digitally manipulating the visuals is just as good, if not better than actually having an explosion? Oh, you know, we try our best and to we we always try to do it for real. I mean, one because it's so much more fun, right? Like what better thing to do at work? You know, you show up to work like what are we doing today? Oh, we're blowing up this building. You know, like oh, that's cool. It's way more fun actually blow up a building than to watch a green screen and uh say oh we have to do it later it's sitting in front of a computer but um the reality is especially with the kind of uh, all the good writing these days right we're in such a golden age of writing um the ideas are just getting so big and so um detailed uh and so interwoven with like characters and things that um we kind of have to now rely on pushing things further um, than what can be shot for real. A lot of it is, you know, audiences these days, um, you know, not just good writing, but we're just so good, uh, so used to good everything, right? Like amazing cinematography now with amazing cameras and amazing um, everything. We've pushed everything. And so the audiences are pretty familiar now with, knowing when they're seeing something that was just done fake, you know, like they, you can kind of tell now when rocks are made out of styrofoam or where glass isn't actually sharp um, or when a character is actually far from the fire, you know, but they, you try to, you try to frame the shots so of the character feels like they're right in front of that, that flaming inferno, but you can kind of tell they're still 10 feet away from it. So, you know, I'd say we still try it and we go for it to shoot it for real. Um, but then we take a look at it when we're editing it and we say, you know, if that fire felt a little closer to her, it would feel that much more dangerous or her emotion would be that much more scared. And then we say, all right, on top of the real fire, let's digitally add more or sometimes just replace um, those rocks that felt a little styrofoam, you know, let's replace them and animate um, using real physics, you know, some like 100 ton rocks that you can never shoot for real. So it always starts with shooting the most we can and just trying to to sweeten it after. Uh, that That's interesting because it brings me to the question, how much collaboration is there between visual effects and special effects? Oh my gosh, we are like tied at the hip. And the third component is probably stunts as well because often with with danger, there's an actor, right? So, or a character. Um, so yeah, so, you know, every day, you know, there's always some meeting where, um, when we're preparing to shoot. So for instance, right now we're in prep for, for um, the next bunch of episodes. Every day, somewhere in the day is outside a table, each with a cup of coffee probably, and going through the lines and, and we'll say, all right, next line the script says, you know, such and such will encounter, you know, something so big and dangerous. And we all raise our hands and say, or, or you know, the, um, the assistant director will say, all right, who's going to do this? And, you know, 
on a good day, everybody raises their hand because everyone's got an idea, you know, say, oh, we could do it this way and we could build a machine that, you know, and then I'll raise my hand. I'll say, oh, visual effects. We could also approach it this way and do digital and stunts might say, oh, actually we have a solution to that's on a good day. On a bad day is when nobody raises their hand and it's like, okay, no one really knows how to solve this one. Um, and then, um, you know, then we break it up and say, okay, well, you know, maybe stunts can do one of the characters, but the other one has to be a stunt double. Okay. But if it's a stunt double, we're going to see the person's face. And then I'll say, well, visual effects can handle that part. We can digitally um, replace a face. Um, and special effects might say, okay, and we'll make sure there's a bunch of rocks falling in the foreground so that we cover up as much of that face as possible. You know, so it really is relies on every department to, to put their best um, ideas forward. That's really interesting. Yeah, I had no idea the interconnectedness of all these different departments and, you know, how they work together to create such a fantastic product. It does feel to me like this kind of work exists within the convergence of two very distinct aspects that are stereotypically, to a layman like myself, very opposite from one another. Like, on, on one hand, there's this powerful mathematic computerized mechanistic world of data and programming and you know a lot of critical analysis then on the other hand you have artistry and storytelling and creativity and this fantastic world populated by victorian superwomen so i was wondering how much is it for you a left brain right brain synthesis between these two things in this work like do you enjoy both of those aspects I got to say, and I always say about visual visual effects, it is the ultimate, ultimate crossover of technology and art. Um, you know, not a day goes by that you don't go home uh, utterly creatively exhausted. You know, every part of your brain, as you said, the, the part that has to dream up the image, and then the other half has to say, well, how am I going to create that image? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm such a nerd for technology and, you know, every day I read all the, the gadget blogs and, you know, they'll say, Oh, this new camera can do, you know, such and such, um, and can now do this speed slow motion. And then I'll see a new 3d program, you know, now had like back on the Smallville days, I, I worked on that show at the very beginning. That's when a lot of software was really just starting to come out. It was a golden age of 3D software. And every new release of, of a program would hey, have some new feature. It's like, now we can simulate um, smoke or now we can simulate hair, right? Like just basic hair strands kind of moving like hair. And then I would say, Okay, next big superpower. We gotta like incorporate that somehow. You know, not a hair monster, but we can say like we gotta. Um, so one time we made like the cape. Uh, we had a few shots of capes in that show, not too many, but um, and said we can we can take a bunch of hair curves and put and sort of put them all together, and then it kind of is like a moving piece of cloth, you know, and and um, that. That fast forward, you know, what, 20 years later now, um, 
we're still very much doing that. Every anytime I see something new on the technology side of, of things, I will always think, all right, how can we use that? How can we use that to create an image uh, that we've never seen before? You know, that audiences haven't gotten used to seeing. And 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 furthermore, you got to think, all right, what's the point? My point isn't just to wow people, right? But you, as an artist, especially in filmmaking, you kind of grow and you mature to realize it, it's got to be about the emotions, right? Like you want a cool image, but for what? It's to like make you feel something and change you somehow, whether to feel scared or excited or sad or angry, you know, it's an image has to make you do that. So we're always looking for technology to help us create new visual ways of making you feel something new. I, I love that idea of effect driven storytelling. Like you were on this cusp, on this frontier of technological innovation, and and you know figuring out how to how to uh, I guess get the, get the hair or like the the cape to flutter and all that kind of stuff, and how that was informing the stories that we see in in media. And I I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what we see today in like I guess Marvel movies and Transformers and all these epic action blockbusters is what made it possible and what made this kind of storytelling possible was technology and the advancement of all these techniques that folks like yourself are at the forefront of. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And and I'll just say one more thing is that it's not filmmaking in general. Cinema has always been about that. You know, the camera itself is a piece of technology even when it was a box with a strip of film moving through it, that is the equivalent of a supercomputer today. You know, back then it was, you know, some very gadget thinking person, you know, how, you know, once we learn how to expose images, it's like, how do we use these images to, to now use it for art? Um, and, you know, uh, so it goes from the cinematography side to, you know, makeup and special makeup, you know, I'm sure as new materials, we learn of different kind of, of, um, you know, pigments and different kind of synthetic rubbers and things I'm sure has, I, I, I've never worked in that department, but I always feel like that's, you know, we, we learn new ways to create new, um, techniques, wardrobe, you know, uh, I haven't worked in wardrobe either, but I do know that, um, pattern making um you know and now a lot of um we use we actually use simulation cloth simulation the same tools we use to do cloth in in visual effects is also being used in um costumes and wardrobe to simulate how would this look on someone you know if the fabric were thinner or heavier how would it drape on someone uh in general so, you know, technology and art is, 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 is woven into every part of filmmaking. It may be a little bit more on the surface of visual effects because it's so bluntly like computers in the most like nerdy way possible. But um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like, uh, what was your path to getting to where you are today How, in this career involved in these projects? Um, did you take another path at first or did you always know you wanted to be in VFX? Um, 
I was always a, I was always like an artist, you know, growing up, I was always a kid who was just drawing constantly. Um, and then that kind of got mixed into a, like a lot of kids in the nineties, your first exposure in the eighties, actually of, of first exposure to a video camera. You know, my dad had one and it was just about running around shooting video of my friends. Um, and, um, computers were just, you know, becoming a thing and, uh, then watching a lot of science fiction. Right. I mean, boy, oh boy, that, that was the age of, you know, every sci-fi genre, you know, in the eighties and nineties was just, it was so groundbreaking visually. You just never saw anything like it. And so I'd say, um, I was always an artist, but fueled with all the, sci-fi television and film I was inundated by probably helped shape me to say, Oh, that's what I want to do. I know I can draw. I know I can paint and I know I can do these things, but I think I want to somehow apply that to what I love, which was watching TV. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting as science fiction. I would imagine is the visual effects playground. Like that's the place you want to be if you're in that field. I don't imagine like you can't really do much in a (laughs) (laughs) rom-com. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, sci-fi definitely paved the way for this industry. So when you were first on this kind of Campbellian journey to to become a VFX artist, did you encounter a mentor figure, like, like a wise old man who gave you the sage advice and the protective amulets to go be successful and slay this crazy CGI dragon? Um, I would say, I, I can't, I don't know if there's a, single person uh, there was my so i went to the school of visual arts in new york uh which is an art school um and uh the the dean of our department john mcintosh who had come from uh some of the great visual effects companies and from kodak and um and i was a freshman and i met i went to his office basically because i said i you know i I think I want to try to find a job. Like I want to make a little cash. And, um, and, uh, it was one of those moments where, you know, I was just a freshman, but I had done so much work on my own, you know, not through school or through, but just doing it on my own. Uh, he basically said, okay. Um, you know, we need to put you in a studio, uh, even though you're not like you're still in school and you're you, usually the seniors are going after internships, but he, he did a lot to, um, recognize in me that, you know, maybe I was doing something not every, all the other kids were doing and, um, basically helped me, um, find beyond the confines of our school, but he found this uh, animation studio in New York to basically take me in as that um, kind of bratty 18 year old who thought they knew everything, but quickly realized you don't know anything when you enter like the real working world. And so it it became my like second playground outside of school. Um, And so basically that the the lesson learned there was just, you know, someone believing in you and, and I'm not saying that's easy to, 
fine. But um, the way you make luck happen is you put yourself out there. You know, like if I didn't go into the office and say, hey, look at my stuff, you know, that would never have happened. Um, so, you know, now with social media and ev every, every kind of outlet out there, you know, it's about putting your work out there, not for vanity. And I think that's an important part of it is, is it's not for vanity because, you know, vanity can be recognized very easily. You know, we're, we're very good as humans in, in sort of detecting an, another person's ego. Um, and I think it's just important that when you put yourself out there, put your work out there, it's a really uh, just do it for the love of it and not not to show off. Nobody likes to show off. At what point uh, during the pre-production process of the Nevers did you join? Where, where did that story start? I, I came on the show um, pretty early. Uh, I think I first read stuff in January, February of 2019 and met with uh, Joss Whedon at about the same time. In fact, I read the material in preparation for my meeting. Um, and uh, I didn't know anything about it. It was super secret. And uh, it was from some of the Game of Thrones uh, production people that largely um, went over onto the, onto the Nevers. And uh, so all, that was my only point of reference. I was like, okay, it might be kind of Game of Thrones-like, but uh, it kind of wasn't, wasn't. I mean, it was period, but it was it was a Joss Whedon show, which was, my goodness, like what what a treat, right? Great, great studio you know they're going to put out good stuff and you know they won't put anything they'll they'll take risks you know but they won't put anything lazy out there you know it's a good studio and Joss Whedon what a great combo with producers from Game of Thrones you know to put it together I joined then it was very early days all the characters were kind of just being formed but we already knew some of our big action pieces that would be in season one we knew hey somehow this um secret car electric car would have to transform out of a carriage uh in a chase sequence and we we're like how is that gonna work like is it does a carriage like is it an escape pod where the carriage just like disintegrates and the car comes out or is it a carriage kind of literally transform like a transformer and um that was probably one of the first discussions um and some of the other characters like like nimble who comes out in episode three or four and he can shoot out these metal discs where um i think at one point they were square but i think they would turn around um I and mean, they're called rounds in the script so they became rounds and um you know, I, I remember pitching an idea of like, we're like, what should they be made out of? You know, like what material? And I said, um, what if like he, they became the material of, of whatever nearby object there was. Like if it was near a brick wall, the disc would be like kind of brick-like. And if he was near some iron, it would be iron. And if he was near glass or water, it would somehow be like a clear disc. Kind of, kind of the idea that he's actually like pulling the molecules from something nearby. Um, we didn't end up doing that. Um, 
probably a little bit out of out of the cost of it. But I guess what I liked about those early meetings and and Joss was so receptive to and Joss is just so uh, such a creative like he's so willing to hear your ideas and riff on them. And, but one of the things I wanted to lay down for Joss for all the superpowers, I I wanted to say um, one of my biggest peeves in other superhero shows and movies is that it's so effortless for all the characters. It always feels like they've got this like unlimited supply of, you know, crazy energy and it never seems to like make them sweat. So I, because the show has themes of science and like real intelligence, right? Penance is all about, she's an inventor. She's not like making stuff out of witchcraft. She's actually like using science to build stuff is I wanted to adhere to a little bit of like rationale and some sort of pseudoscience. And, you know, the first rule is conservation of energy, right? All things burn energy to exert force, right? We burn calories to lift a heavy weight. And um, so I wanted to say, you know, let's make sure these characters, like it takes effort to use their powers, especially when, if they did something big, if Bonfire throws a really big fireball, let's make sure it feels like it's hard for her. It's like in a video game, right? You, you, you charge button, hold down button, let, let it charge. You, let go right you got to earn the big the the big energy blast and so um i was like let's make sure that it feels like there's effort for the characters and so uh with nimble again in 106 uh sorry episode 105 where um spoilers he he throws down a bunch of discs to create this um these steps for Ping to run down to run to malady if you watch closely you can see with every disc he throws it's it we try to make it look like it's harder for him with each disc because it has he has to throw it further and further away and out of rapid succession it's almost like he runs out of energy by the end um by the last one and those little things were were it doesn't seem like visual effects but it visual effects still ties into the story and to make the visual effects believable, you know, it depends on that performance and that acting of, of um, whether it means they feel tired or are running out of juice. Yeah, I can't tell you as a, I'll say as a representative of the audience, I think I can speak for the audience when I say how much we appreciate that attention to detail. Because so often it's, it's, it, I, it, like you said, in, in so many of these shows, there's not much of a physical or emotional cost to what's happening. And it feels a little bit outside of the laws of physics in a way that's not something you really have to suspend your disbelief. But like, as, like you were saying with Penance, the fact that she had those sleepless nights after those inventions, yeah. or it really took a toll on her physically. And, um, yeah, I think it really adds to that world and to these characters in such a wonderful way. So I really appreciate that. Just to throw a little token of appreciation at you over there. Um, I'm so glad you noticed that. The Penance thing is a perfect example. And that's just in the writing, right? That's, that's just good writing. Yeah. So how large is your team on a production like this? In in the visual effects department, 
It's quite big. Um, I'd say within the shoot, kind of like we've got like a, a dozen people directly kind of servicing the visual effects department, everything from production coordinators and managers and people who are taking care of the like everyday department to department logistics of like, oh, we need gloves, but they need to be painted green. You know, we have a lot of that on our show where we have to paint stuff green um, to be green screen um, all the way down to um, what we call um, visual effects data wranglers who are these guys that are so on their feet all day where they're taking measurements of everything we film uh, when it's a visual effects shot, which on this show is nearly every shot. Um, they measure like distance of the camera to the actor and an actor to the wall and triangulate all the, you know, what, what that triangle is so that when we shoot the green screen version of that on a different day, we can recreate that same camera setup. Um, and so that's what, um, camera, uh, data wranglers do. Um, we even have a dedicated green screen team, which is, um, Three, three very strong men who uh, are basically maintaining all the gigantic green screen and blue screens we have on any shoot day. And often it means um, these green screens are on giant cranes, basically, uh, these giant um, cherry picker cranes and things that are holding up these 20 foot by 20 foot blue and green screens. Um, Sometimes we have several of these. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I'd say about a dozen on set with us. And then um, and then for the visual effects work, the shot work, um, which are the artists actually executing, you know, uh, and doing the animation, 3D modeling and texturing and lighting. And um, I can't even give you a number. It, it's in the hundreds. And those guys obviously are not on set, right? Those those guys are working remotely? Correct. So those guys work with the individual companies that we um, hire. Uh, so like the Macavision Scanline, um, uh, we had uh, so many across every continent, I think. Uh, we had Megalus in, in Japan. We had Mr. X in Canada. Um, Scanline uh, is in LA, but they're kind of satellited all over the world. Um, uh, lots of lots of companies, and again, that adds up to hundreds of artists. Um, so, and at one point, especially with all the different continents they're on, it, it meant that at some point, at every hour of the day, someone in the world was working on the Nevers. <laughs> it's a twenty-four hour job. Twenty-four hours, yeah. yeah. Was that part of your job to recruit all these v different VFX companies or how involved were you on in that? Yeah, so pretty much it lies uh, between me and our visual effects producer, um, Jack Geist, who is pretty much the lateral person next to me that is kind of weighs in on, uh, on everything, but... Uh, the visual effects producer is um, kind of more or less in charge of the actual logistics and rationale of 
the budget and the schedule and making sure it all gets done. I'm uh, my half is a little bit more on the um, creative and technical side of like actually getting the work done. So, um, so we kind of talk and we decide uh, who we feel, you know, what artists are out there, what supervisors we've worked with in the past or what companies we've worked in the past. I used to work at Scanline um, on 2012 actually. And so they're good friends of mine. And so we call them up and say, Hey, we have, um, such and such work to do. Um, they did the, uh, Galanthi ship coming out of the clouds in the pilot and all the spores that rained down. Uh, and they did the big water fight in 103. Um, so good friends of mine. And, um, but we talk to them and then we we decide, all right, what what can they do? We talk to other companies as well to see who's best suited to what. And, you know, it's really about playing to everyone's strengths, right? Different artists are good at certain things. And um, and we that that's, you know, recruitment's all about that. But being a, a good, I guess, supervisor is having a good eye to know you know, really who has the better, I'm saying better, but you know, who's more suited to what type of work, whether it's all our environments and set extensions, uh, um, a company in Milan, EDI did all of our set extensions on our show. And that is quite a feat because on a period show, it's really hard to, um, come up with a world that only exists in black and white photos and old books. Um, uh, so some companies are better at environment. Some companies are better at water and effects. Some companies are better at um, the abstract. Um, Mary's light that comes out of her in her song in the pilot and in episode three. Um, we use a very well-known company called Bouffe uh, in Paris, uh, which are famous for some of the very like um, artistic and abstract visuals all the way back from like Neo's Matrix Vision in, and maybe they did the second one where it's featured more, um, to like Batman's, uh, remember his like echolocation vision in, like, yeah. in one of the Nolan films. Um, so they did Mary's Light for us because we're like, ah, oh, it has to deal with like sound waves and it had to have this essence of, of kind of, things in nature, again, sound waves, it's her song, it's her voice. How do we visualize something that's actually audio and still keep it beautiful? And, you know, not to generalize, but um, um, uh, a lot of, I've worked with so many French companies, Parisian companies that are so, uh, I I think it's in the culture. They're just so like visually, so, so on it uh, when it comes to like coming up with cool and uh, really tasteful kind of um, looking designs. And so uh, Booth did that for us. Um, they were great. So anyways, to answer lots of different companies and um, yes, I do kind of handpick each one. Talking about all the different companies you worked with and just how geographically diverse all of this work is, I was I was curious about how COVID has impacted the VFX business because I know that a lot of obviously you were on set, 
but a lot of the people who are doing more of the digital work were working remotely. So there's no geographic obligation for them to be in LA or to be America based or anything like that, right? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, pre COVID, yeah, we were largely, uh, I've never met a lot of the um, companies in person, uh, you know, up to that point. And, and still to this day, but, you know, there was always the intention of it's always good to visit the studios. And, and, you know, when you have time and prep, I usually try to make my rounds a bit to at least see the facilities and see, you know, the size of the render farm and, you know, things like that, and just putting a face to it. Um, we don't have that luxury anymore. And, um, but, you know, to be honest, um, we, visual effects was a ready gearing up for the age of remote work. Um, There are whole studios, uh, modern visual effects studios, um, some in London that uh, from the ground up were remote, meaning uh, they have no CPUs under their desk where, and and not as something they morphed into, like the company was, were designed to only use cloud computing Therefore, the artists could even log in from home because they didn't need the the big computer under their desk. Um, So we're kind of warmed up for that already as an industry. COVID accelerated that, you know, but like all things, it's it's about communication, right? And if if everyone can get on a Zoom and at the right time, you know, giving the time zone issues, I'd say that probably was the, the hardest part of it was how do you get Tokyo, London, LA to be on the same call? That was pretty tough, actually. Um, But in terms of the work, um, I think we just, you know, we just bit our lip and pressed on, um, you know, knowing that a lot of artists were working from home. You know, some would say that we got more efficiency out of it and artists were a lot happier. Uh, and, um, I think there are still some hurdles to jump, um, you know, working visual effects, you have to be looked the quality of the image you're looking at on your monitor has to be super, not just high res, but the color fidelity, the monitor you have, right. In our industry, we have computer monitors that cost like, you know, $20,000. Um, I don't, uh, not, I don't think everyone needs one, by the way. I don't personally think it's necessary. But, um, you know, it's, it's a very gear-heavy industry. Um, and so, you know, there are times when I got some shots I was reviewing, and I'm like, oh, the color feels kind of off on this. I wonder if it's because some poor artist is in their bedroom with sunlight pouring into their room on their probably gaming monitor that they just had at home, you know, uh, not to their fault. And uh, those are the kind of things that, you know, that's just a matter of um, COVID caught us so off guard. I think in the future we'll be more prepared and we'll have better ways to do it. I will say this shooting during COVID was very, very difficult. Um, We were shooting 105 and 106 episode five and six um, after COVID shut us down, when the first time we came back uh, with all the heavy restrictions, and I'm sure every other show has talked about this, but 
the funny thing is the one scene that uh, we had deliberately held off on before we even knew about COVID was, uh, and again, spoilers, but Melody's hanging scene. Uh, because we, at one point, we had like um, planned for like 500 extras or something. Uh, don't quote me on that. It was a lot. Um, but, you know, that's pre-COVID with still the intention of multiplying that even more to make the, the, the crowd look like thousands, right? So come COVID, we're like, okay, that's not going to happen. The whole story is about the people, right? That the whole theme of that episode is um, how does a collective body of London react to this Um and uh, so we did every trick in the book to make our very meek crowd of sometimes only 20 to 50 extras um, all wearing masks. And right before we yell action, they pull their masks off and put them in their pockets. Um, and we, we use every trick in the book to multiply those 50 to look like, you know, maybe 500. We definitely didn't go as far as 1,000. But uh, um it was very challenging, and uh, but boy, oh boy, so proud of the team because we got through it, and I think it's a great episode and a great scene, and I think, uh, you know, maybe now that people know, they, they might watch it and be like, oh, there are a lot of kind of clever camera angles that hide people, but um, it, it was challenging, but really, really happy with what everyone did. Everyone was so into it. Everyone after COVID, you could feel the kind of camaraderie to say, guys, we're so lucky to be filming. Let's just do our best um, to get it done. That scene really comes off as, I mean, I think the effects that you were looking for as an audience member were certainly received for me because it, it did really feel like, uh, like a, I guess a, a pack of wolves salivating over this public event that was, I guess, morally uh, outrageous, and it, like the the emotion was really felt. So I'll I'll say in another scene, I think that you mentioned a little earlier, which was one of the standout scenes in this show for me at least, was the water fight between Amalia and Odium. So I was yes. wondering how far in advance did you have to prep for that and. What were some shots that were done on a sound stage? Was it on location? And what were like some of the challenges with that one? Yeah, so luckily we knew about that um, very early while we are still prepping for the pilot, I think. Although it was actually not gonna be Odium, it's gonna be another character, um, but later adapted to Odium because it was a much cooler scene. Uh, but anyway, um we got to plan that one really early and the way i mentioned the, the the sitting at the table with your coffee we had one of those meetings with stunts and special effects and we said all right we got this guy he's got to walk in water and beat up amalia she's got to be underwater he's got to be above water and all the classic suggestions came out um you know we build a glass a glass platform you know just under the water surface uh, but a very kind of narrow one that he could walk on, but Amalia could freely be underwater right next to him. Um, and then we thought, okay, well, we could do stuff also with wires. 
Um, so he, it looks like he's kind of treadmilling over the water, like suspending him over the water. Um, and, uh, and then we thought, you know, there are ways we could do on CG. Uh, we did have ideas of shooting it in the real lake. Uh, but then by the time we had our schedule for the shoot, we it got pushed to February and it's like the coldest, coldest time of the year here. And just for safety reasons that we cannot do that. I mean, for all we know, it could have been um, frozen. Um, uh, so it became as, as all good successful sequences, a combination of, of all those things I just mentioned. We shot in a tank at Pinewood Studios, a very famous uh, indoor tank where many of James Bond and many of films have um, shot in. And uh, we said that was gonna be the lake. We're gonna put green screen all around it and we are gonna make a digital, an all digital environment of the lake. Um, very ambitious because it's nice to have a little bit of green screen, but when everything is green, your brain is not so easily fooled. Um, so a lot of tricks to that to um, make it feel, uh, <laughs> make it feel real. Um, so we had a tank and um, uh, we pre-vised the whole sequence. And pre-vis is when you kind of make an almost like low res gaming animatic of a, of a whole sequence where everything is just kind of super low poly version, um, like animated storyboards. And the reason we do this is not just to tell us what the shots are, but we had to kind of reverse engineer in 3D space how with every image we want to see, how can you actually shoot that in a tank? Because you have to have like a crane, a camera at the end of a crane, and that crane has to be able to go above water and underwater. So a crane is a big arm and there are only so many angles it can swing before it accidentally like knocks someone's head off, right? It's a huge, huge machine. So um, we pre-visit, we break it down, we say these shots are gonna be the crane, these shots are gonna be a scuba diver with a camera. Um, and um, Laura Donnelly, who plays Amalia, she was a trooper. And I know it's said on every other interview behind the scenes thing for the sequence, but she deserves it because she was put through hell in that sequence and she, never once blinked an eye, never once told, you know, said, guys, let's stop. She was, she was game for it. She knew it was arduous. And um, so every shot of, of it is Laura, except for just a handful of wire stunts um, where it's um, Helen Bailey, her stunt trainer and double who's doing the shot. But 95% of it is Laura and I think that's what makes the sequence so real. Because it was her, the camera, we didn't have to dodge any angles. We didn't have to like, you know, avoid seeing her face as a lot of stunt action scenes go. We just went for it. And you're staring right at her as she's like running out of air. Um, and that was, it was so real. And honestly, the visual effects, as much as I'm super proud of it, are only as good as the performance. Um, you know, we can do CG water, we can do CG bubbles, we can um, do all of that. It none of it means anything if you don't believe that what that 
actress is doing. Um, and, um, you know, the surface of the water, we, we experimented with like trampolines and we went to a trampoline park to kind of play with this idea of the surface, not being rigid. He can still walk on it, but it should still kind of balance and give. And we're like, what kind of surface is that? So we bounce around trampolines and we got memory foam mattresses and lined them all up like a pathway and, um, you know, tried everything. And, and I think it shows, I would say when you watch the sequence, it's subtle, but you can tell the surface he walks on has this nice kind of bendiness to it. And pretty proud of that. The scene is, it does feel very real. And by virtue of, I guess, the performance as well as just, uh, the atmosphere you created it has a frenetic energy to it that's really exciting and really scary and it's incredible to me that you've just mentioned right now that wasn't shot on location that was a completely green sc- green screen environment that you created i was wondering when she fell off the bridge was that some was that an actual bridge or was that also a depth perception trick or something yeah so there are I'd say two shots that are shot on location. It's the very first shot and the very last shot, but it's not the shot you're talking about. The, the, the location shot is when um, you see the carriage kind of tilted over and Odium reveals himself from behind the carriage and starts to walk towards the bank. That's real. And the shot... Um, Actually, when he first walks out onto the water, that one is real, but the water has been replaced, but he is actually walking on a platform. And the very last shot where she looks up at the horses um, is real, like at the location. Everything in between is is stage, including the shot where she falls out. We're kind of looking down towards the water. She falls away from camera. And so that is a carriage set piece built on on a scaffold with this door trap kind of trap door able to like release on command. So we're actually staring into the, the Pinewood swimming pool there. And uh, it's pretty convincing. I mean, if you look closely, you can tell that it's not sunlight reflecting. That's usually the giveaway, but um, it's an amazing stunt. So your, your eyes are just like, Oh my God. So that, that pretty much helps us not realize it's a, it's a tank. I wanted to ask you about one one more of the kind of sizable turns uh, you got to visualize on the show, and that's Primrose. Can mm-hmm. you talk about her initial appearance and the techniques you used to kind of create her character? Yeah. Um, so from the beginning, we knew about Primrose. Uh, it was very interesting, actually, at first. We were wondering, should it be like a very tall, lanky um, character that we scale up, you know, just a not a little bit, but, you know, someone that lends themselves already to being tall. But then we kind of realized, ah, that's not kind of what we're trying to tell. We want this, this girl to be a small, shy, kind of sheepish girl. And what's the worst thing that can happen to that shy girl is being twice as big. So that was something decided early on. They won't be a, a tall, skinny actress. They'll be someone... Um, quite petite to kind of give it the most contrast. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we, 
we did a bunch of tests in the beginning of like, is she eight? Is um, she, the actress is about five feet. And we said, should she be seven feet, eight feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. Um, so uh, we did a bunch, a few green screen tests and we decided, eh, you know, doubling it by two to make her 10 feet is probably the easiest math wise, because there's so much math that would go into planning every shot. And we thought, yeah, 10 feet, that's good. Double the height, nice, easy number. And um, so for everyone out there, she's, she's supposed to be theoretically 10 feet. Of course, it's cheated. The reference, of course, coming from Jaws was, uh, oh, come on, the Hulk. We cheated him in every shot. Sometimes he was smaller, sometimes he was bigger. Like any times I got really like uppity about like, oh, that's not the right size. He's like, don't worry. Like the Hulk, no one ever blinked an eye. So, okay. Um and the way we filmed um, uh, Anna was, um, uh, again, bag of tricks. Everyone, in every meeting I go to, where we have a new kind of um, producer or someone, they always ask, so how do we shoot primrose? And I say, there's not one single way. It's a, it's a big bag of tricks. And uh, again, to filmmaking, there's not one solution. Depends, is it a wide shot? Is it a close-up? Is she moving? Is she walking? In general, you know, one thing we do is um, we shoot the scene uh, kind of as is um, so that all the other characters can know their no. So they can still speak to her for real. And so there's the interaction. Um, and then we shoot Primrose. We shoot Anna on a green screen. But we try to set up the green screen there. So we're still there right after we've shot everyone else. So we're still in the moment, you know, that same uh, with all the other characters there. We're in the same set, same lighting, but we put up a green screen behind her. And then we, we take the cameras and we move the cameras in closer to her um, by half the distance and half the height. So if the camera is 10 feet away from her normally, with all the other act actresses, let's say it's 10 feet away, but four feet off the ground. We, for the primrose pass, we move the cameras in to be five feet away from her and two feet off the ground. So from the camera's point of view, she is optically twice as large. It's not the same thing as zooming the lens. It, by moving the camera physically closer, you have shrunken the world around the actress. So this is, quote unquote, the most like optically correct way to pull off the, the gag of having a giant. Um, she, you're supposed to also shoot them in slow motion. Um, that we kind of creatively decided not to do a lot of, um, just to keep the character more natural because it's, at the end of the day, it's all about believing the character and, and the emotions and especially her lines. And so we said, all right, we can't do her in slow motion because we still need to relate to her like a young girl. Um, so um, does that work? You know, and sometimes I do say, oh, you know, it should, it should be slow motion, but um, that gives it the right weight and size. But uh, at the end of the day, I think it's a creative um, uh, exception that, um, keeps it real, keeps a, the the uh, the character real, and you believe everything she says because it's um, we haven't manipulated that you know the um, speed of that. Right. Uh, 
And then, so just to, just to like clarify that. So you shoot, when you shoot it as, uh, like naturally, do you digitally remove her from that scene in her, in her natural size and then add in uh, the sometimes, big- like sometimes, um, if she's clear of anyone else, we'll just leave her there. But, uh, if, um, if we know there are people going to be crossing over, we will have Anna come out of the scene, but read her lines from off off camera and sometimes put just a little green marker hanging from the ceiling to represent the top of 10 feet or, or rather where her eyes should be so that all the other actresses can look up at that little green piece of tape or or sometimes it's like a, a tennis ball um and that and uh yeah so sometimes we do sometimes we don't how cool was it to design the galanthi the Galanthi was a very long and adventurous journey. <laughs> um, what's funny is we previsited it early on. We had to previs that sequence, and we didn't. We had no idea at that point what it was going to be, and uh, uh, we just used like three spheres put together, kind of like a giant ant, just as a placeholder in our previs because it was that vague. Like we really had no direction yet so um what ultimately okay so there's a galanthi ship and the galanthi creature which one are you referring to either either or both yeah so um the the ship uh honestly and this is my favorite design process is i you know we have an artist and i say uh i i'd rather have 50 pencil sketches and by that i mean literally like a pencil and a piece of paper in a in a two or three second you know just draw a shape just give me a shape and i say i'd rather have 50 of those you know by tomorrow rather than three really beautiful painted colored images because um well i you know for something like a ship it's got to be so recognizable by its silhouette, um, right? The way any great icon or, um, sh- you know, uh, any any great, especially a vehicle. Um, I- I'm a big Star Trek fan, and um, I remember reading about the design of Deep Space Nine, the space station. And one thing I remember reading is the Enterprise has such a such a distinct simple shape it's a circle with two two cylinders for an engine and sort of a middle cylinder um and it's so simple it's four shapes but that's what it is right uh so deep space nine i i remember reading that they had all these designs and the producer had basically said uh a kid from the kitchen, an eight-year-old boy in the kitchen looking across the hall to the living room on his, you know, old school TV has to be able to recognize that space station from across the room. You know, it has to be that simple in design that some, that you that if it popped up on TV, because it was all about like back in the day, you, you caught something on TV, right? It's like your channel flipping and you would stop if you saw something cool. So they're like, it has to be that simple and recognizable that from looking across the room, 
you'd recognize, ah, that is Deep Space Nine. So I remember that. And so I kind of went by the same idea. Like this ship has to be so like simple. Um, and uh, I think Joss responded really well to that. Um, and he, I think he appreciated this idea of like, let's have a lot of, of really rough images and a few really nice painted images, you know, especially in high budget shows, you know, you tend to get this really beautiful, beautiful painted artwork. And then you feel bad, you know, you kind of feel guilty when you have to tell the artist like, well, that's actually not at all what we wanted, but it's beautiful. But then it's like, what did that get us guys? We got a beautiful image, but it's not what we want. So um, I really believe in like a lot of simple pencil sketches. So we had pages and pages printed out and we would just lay them all out on this long table. And I would give Joss a Sharpie and I would have a Sharpie and it'd just be like, these are disposable printouts, just go to town. We just X and circle and check mark things we like, things we didn't like about different designs. And um, what we landed on for the ship, I think there's one image that was very much almost like a bow, kind of resembled a bow, like a bow and arrow bow. And um, I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. And Joss has really good instincts of just knowing what, um, what will, I think, catch people's eyes. And, and uh, by that same token, simple shape, but recognizable and memorable. Um, we developed that one drawing and the very last thing to get added to it. Um, and, the, and the theme, the brief, if you want to know, was always uh, at this point in the story, we don't want to know, is it explicitly a spaceship? Is it a creature? Is it both? Is it a spaceship that is so advanced that it's effectively grown? You know, maybe that's how vehicles uh, are actually made in a super intelligent, technologically forward place that we would like somehow be able to grow our spaceships. Um, all, you know, and, and we want to make sure it wasn't too creature-like. So we put all these little holes as if they were like windows and little points of light. Um, and uh, and I think we struck that balance pretty well. Um, and the last thing to be added was this, this kind of great, um, almost peacock-like tail feathers to the ship, which was a very which was very very late in the design process. Like way after we finished the ship, we went back and said we needed like a really elegant way to show the spores coming out. Um, so we thought, right, let's make the sweeping tail, these tail feathers, and the spores would continue on from the shape of those feathers. Um, uh, one, to make, again, make it readable, legible, uh, something you could spot even if it's really small on screen. And um, from reading some of the comments online, it seems to be a lot of people picked up on that kind of, those tail feather features. Um, almost angel wings. I think some people are interpreting it as like the wings of an angel, which we never, ever, ever thought. I never saw it that way, but now I, I can't see anything but angel wings. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's a ship. Yeah, no, I, I actually definitely saw it that way. When I first saw it, it felt like something almost godlike and divine and unknowable in that kind of way, the, the mystery. And in the sense that you were saying you want this 
iconic shape to be something that people like it catches their eye and obviously like all the characters on the ground it caught their eyes like they're all staring up into the sky and that feels like a subconscious indication for me and for the audience that we should be focusing on this thing in the sky we don't know what it is and i wanted to ask you like this maybe this is my pet theory but uh i think in episode six sarah describes the ship as a dragonfly and i was wondering because when i think of the galanthi and the orb and i'll just preface this by saying you can totally dance around this question you don't have to give out any spoilers or anything but the orb feels to me a bit like a cocoon kind of thing which takes me to the to the butterfly aspect where it like a butterfly or starts off as a caterpillar and then it cocoons itself and uh, emerges into this beautiful thing that flies. And uh, maybe the Galanthi and the scientist recording is the caterpillar stage. Or I, again, like you don't have to spoil or anything, but I wonder, did you have an influence in that kind of way? I think the the pod or the chrysalis, whatever you want to call it, the thing in the cave, always meant to let you know it's some kind of you know, egg or, or chrysalis. And there's a line by, hey, less egg, more chrysalis-like. Um, uh, so, you know, that was that was always meant to, like, be very, very clear. Um, the dragonfly thing, funny enough, uh, that was episode six. And, you know, by that point, the production schedule, especially with the COVID hiatus, was we had most of episode one already done. Uh, and so by time six was being written, it was pretty clear what the visual of the ship was. So I'm not 100% sure, but I would, inf- I would assume that at that point, it, you know, it, it actually does look like a dragonfly. We probably didn't think of that while, while designing it, but by time six was written, there was visual now material to go off of. Also, the way the spores came out of the ship, Malady says it was a dragonfly and it emitted sparks, a fire like sparks. And um, uh, again, I think that we probably benefited by having the visuals done for one for the pilot by that point. So um, six could be written with very specific visuals like that. It was never like it was a dragonfly and we like we knew about that, so we had to design it like a dragonfly. That line was probably being born out of what our ultimate design was. Um, if you ask me, I maybe all along is supposed to be a dragonfly, but in terms of the whole caterpillar and all that, um, uh, not, I mean, you know, it's, it's always, again, it's an egg, it's a chrysalis, there's always that, uh, there's always implied, right? That that it's, it's some kind of evolving thing, so. Right. Mm-hmm. What, just in general, what are some other shots in the show that our listeners would be surprised to learn were digitally inserted via CGI? Are there any surprises? A lot. Um, I mean, a lot of really silly things like, uh, adding more people into the department store and adding more people onto the street because we felt London didn't feel crowded enough. We had a lot of real locations of London, 
real London squares where we just sort of like CG replaced one whole half of it to like make it feel more expansive and open. I think the town square in 105 uh, is probably the best example because of COVID, um, you know, we were so limited to what we could shoot at, in the hanging scene. You know, we had moments of, um, we didn't even have enough because of COVID, we didn't have enough background to like um, have the soldier, like the two gunmen at the same time as like the other two guards because they were gonna be played by the same people. So in shots where you're looking up at the shooters, um, you, you, if you look closely, like some shots they are there and sometimes they're not. And, and actually we didn't end up replacing because I think we rationalized enough that, oh, they could have moved to the other side or, um, but, you know, those were the constraints, like um, all those camera angles are, are trying to hide so much of what, um, what we couldn't show uh, because we didn't have, um, you know, either the, enough people or the set. Um, we did a CG extension, the whole like second level uh, of, of that whole set is all CG looking up. Um, what else? When Amalia comes out of, of, um, what's the place called? She comes out of, uh, Grand Abbey at the end of 106 after the birds attack. That's completely CG because we had no, um, well, we just thought, you know, it was, it was pretty ambitious, but we ended up having just this camera angle that just looked at nothing but blue screen, which is okay. Cause you know, we can do that, but um, definitely some of the more ambitious CG of whenever you start replacing most of the screen, you really start to get into like, Ooh, this is, you know, let's not be too ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Sorry. I can't think of any. Oh no, that, that was more than enough. You gave us gold. I wanted to say, speaking of that bird attack scene, I don't know just in terms of, um, the growth potential of that character, Augustus Bidlow. I don't know if you've seen Hitchcock's The Birds, but sure. I, yeah, mm -hmm. I feel like, and again, this is just me kind of uh, extrapolating from what we've already seen. I'm incredibly excited to see his powers and how they manifest in the world and to see how the how he uses birds as I guess a weapon or maybe not just a weapon a surveillance device I don't know but I feel like it could have a really atmospheric kind of horror quality to it you know if given the story circumstances I don't know so I'm trying to just smuggle that in there yeah no I mean he's such a great character I mean his, his performance is, is just golden in every every scene uh so you know i think at the end of the day um again we try to rely not so much on i think one of the, the strengths of the show is like we don't we try not to get too gimmicky uh and too like too sci-fi um you know and we really do bring it back to the character you know we have plenty of of creative meetings where we say Oh, you know, then like a camera can like swoop through London and we pull back and, and then we remind ourselves, mm, not our show, you know, that's a cool idea, just not, 
our show. You know, we try to, um, anyway, so going back to Augie is, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's always be more about him and, and his performance. And, um, you know, we'll have a few bird things, no doubt. I don't know. I just say it's, it, it all has to relate back to his character. So, um, yeah, uh, that's, that's what I'll say. Um, so the cinematographer on the series is uh, Seamus McGarvey. I was wondering because the cinematographer really establishes a look of the of the show. Are they keeping in touch with the post production part of it? Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, this is a, in general. Um, Seamus, uh, who is by the way just the most fantastic uh, DOP to work with just is such such a nice guy and super duper creative and just super fun about it um uh he was with us for the first um few episodes uh and then uh, we do have different dops rolling through the show um the same way you have different directors rolling through the show uh and yes seamus was always given the kind of responsibility of, of setting the tone for the show, uh, which I think he did in a fantastic way. And even when we're shooting, um, you know, me and him on set, me, the DOP and the director are often kind of huddled together, um, having to basically trade notes and say, well, you know, what if I wanted to get a shot of this? So then I would say, well, that, you know, you would have to put some blue screen there, or maybe if the actor reacted in such a way, we could then add something that they're reacting to, you know, like um, it's this, it's this nice little dialogue between what the director wants, how are we going to shoot it? And then um, how does visual effects help or not help? Um, and so with Seamus, a lot of times, uh it would be discussing like um if i wanted to shoot primrose this way if the camera were dollying you know and moving with there's a lovely shot when amalia and penance first are in their new opera outfits as they start to head out to the opera they they say their 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 uh their lines of you look lovely lovely i think so too and it's a great shot where all the orphans are there and the camera is dollying and you see Primrose standing there and Primrose kind of shuffles out of the way to let Amalia and Penance pass. Um, beautiful shot. Crazy to do because like dollying cameras, all the characters, Pen uh, Primrose is in front of a window, which means if she's in front of a window, we can't put a green screen there because it's blocking the light. That's pretty much lighting the whole room. So those are those discussions where it's like, uh, I'm like, okay, can we put a green screen? And it's like, oh, but that's where the light is coming from. Oh, if we move the camera here, um, so it's a nice dialogue. And and when you and Seamus was, is just one of these great guys that is so willing to like work with you, and he knows he kind of trusts that you're doing what's uh, ultimately, you know best for the show you know it's not just out of out of my butt that i'm coming up with stuff so what you see in the show is usually kind of the end result of the three of us um kind of uh 
you know, uh, coming up with our final solution. Uh, and if you look at that shot in particular, the solution was um, we didn't put any green screen to block the light. Uh, and the doll, the camera dolly move is, um, it's getting a little technical, but it's, it's only on one axis, meaning that it's not dollying and jibbing, which means up and down. Dollying is left and right. Jibbing is up and down. It's not doing both. Um, it's only dollying, which means that when we composite primrose in, we only have to worry about like one axis of, of, of match moving. Um, if you're trying to match move two different X, X, I axis X, I, you are dealing with, um, it becomes nearly impossible to recreate the same camera move because we have to shoot primrose separately on a separate take. And to get that move to match in both the dolly and the jib is, is extraordinarily difficult. So that's one of the like, oh, I can give you the move, but only one, only the dolly or the jib. Um, and then to answer your question about how involved does um, he get into post, um, Seamus uh, or any DOP will always um, do a pass of the grade, the color grade, which ultimately seals the final it's like the final varnish on, on a show, right? It's a final fine tuning of all the color. Um, sometimes it's with the visual effects, often visual effects haven't been finished yet, but um, yeah, it, it, when, when in, in a perfect world, the DOP definitely has their final, um, you know, little kiss on, on the episode. <laughs> cool. I hear that the video wall is really popular these days. Can you explain to the listeners what a video wall is and how you use that? The video wall, does that mean like virtual production, like an LED stage? Yeah, I think so. Yes. On our show, we don't use any video walls. Um, what if what you're referring to is on shows like The Mandalorian, um, and Star Wars, few Star Wars movies. They basically have a giant LED curved 180 degree wall that's like 12 feet, 15, 20 feet tall, maybe. Um, and that's the idea that instead of building sets and uh, instead of green screen, you actually do all the visual effects work up front and design the environments and model texture and light your world but you do it through like an unreal engine and you actually put up the 3d set on that video wall and have the characters, the actors perform in front of it. Um, it's all the rage right now. And everyone, everyone talks about it. Um, it is a very, very future forward approach to filmmaking. And uh, I don't doubt that a lot of shows, visual effects shows will get into it. Um, if you ask me who has quite a bit of knowledge and experience in real time stuff and how LEDs work, um, it's a great tool and it's just gotta be used for the right things and for the right budget. Uh, people seem to think that, oh, this will be cheaper because we don't have to build anything or, or we, you know, or that we don't have to um, pay for all these visual effects later. 
uh, well, you know, cost-wise, well, I don't know too much about the cost, but it's still visual effects. You're just sort of doing it up front. And um, that is not necessarily that much more fun. In fact, it probably puts a lot of pressure to get stuff done. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what people forget is visual effects is not just putting something into that green screen. Uh, visual effects is in the post process, this very, very, very iterative process with not just the directors, but producers and editors and uh, where we fine tune stuff to death, right? We say, oh, move that, move that cloud a little bit over, you know, or make that building just a little bit taller or that flower a little redder. And um, by, you know, by doing things in post, uh, we have that flexibility. Is that flexibility always good? No, because it gives it, it, you just go out of control sometimes. But if you do, do if you choose to do virtual production, it's usually with the intention of saying, "Well, we're done, right? We filmed it. We don't have to do it." But you know, uh, in the post process, people are going to want things changed, right? And uh, they're still going to want that building a little taller or that cloud a little bit moved over, in which case it becomes even more costly because you don't have green screen to easily cut out the characters, right? Um, now that's changing. There are some really, really next generation technologies coming out where we'll be able to pull green screen and put these virtual backgrounds at the same time uh, through some really, really crazy methods where we can like flicker between the green screen faster than the eye can see, but the camera can see it. So you'll get both your green screen. Like if you switch every other frame from green screen to your virtual background, you, the human eye may not even pick it up, but, but the cameras will be able to see both frames and you'll have both your green screen. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm speaking now a little theoretical, but um, virtual production, great tool. Uh, just use it for the right use it for the right thing that's fascinating that you say it's future forward in the sense that if they can make it a more agile process then it'll be really the perfect combination of being iterative and also being something that informs performances on the set oh yeah it, it's coming for sure okay it just may not be for everyone right now mm -hmm. Uh, so do you think that for a visual effects supervisor in film and television, it's easy to make the transition into video games and vice versa? And have you worked in video games? I have never worked in video games. Uh, I've been asked that a lot. Um, I played up. I grew up playing video games constantly. Um, although there's a different era of games, but... Um, so funny enough, I would say, and to go back to your question about how did I get into, you know, visual effects, what I probably forgot to mention was the like the thousands of hours of playing video games, right? Because it just taught you about graphics and taught you about basic programming and just how colors and graphics and pixels and sprites and, and physics, uh, game physics. But um I have worked in games and uh, 
is it easy to go between the two? I would say it's, it depends who you are. I think for um, visual effects artists, especially ones that are specialized in um, like assets, which are like building the models and texturing and, and shading and um, animators and riggers and rigging. Now we actually put like bones and muscles under the skin. So we're actually simulating how, you know, game that we do that in movies right now and visual effects, no doubt that's coming to games very soon. Um, so a lot of what games is, is what visual effects um, could do 10 years ago, but now you can do it in real time. Um, so everything we're doing in visual effects now that takes us hours to compute, or you got to wait till the next morning to see if something rendered, you know, it's going to come into games probably now just five years from now. So um, in that sense, it is easy to hop across because a lot of the technology is the same. Uh, again, from that artist perspective and maybe technical programming, from a visual effects supervisor perspective, maybe not as transferable because the core of my job uh, still lies in like the the creative storytelling. So maybe for like game cinematics, yes, it's totally applicable because it's basically like a short film, but for like real-time gameplay, I, it's less, I'd probably be less useful. Like if, if I were to like go to a game company now, I'm not really sure what I could offer. You know, I'd be like, I could probably tell you how to make images look cool, but, um, or how to tell, a story and emotionally convey something, but I probably wouldn't be able to tell you what makes a good game. Um, I don't know if you've ever played like the Naughty Dog games like Uncharted or The Last of Us, but those are such cinematic games that I really blurring the boundary between what's film and what's games. And, you know, it's, it's also a very linear story focused yes. type thing. Yeah. I mean, that, what a such pioneering and I love games like that because boy, does it, does it shake up the industry. That's when everyone starts asking, whoa, can like, can game people become filmmakers and get filmmakers become games? Um, yeah, I think it's great. I personally probably just, uh, am not, um, uh, probably equipped, but I think there probably are probably a lot younger, um, VFX supervisors who probably are, uh, a lot more in tune with that, um, that uh, kind of understanding both realms because everyone watches movies, right? What, what person who play games doesn't watch movies, right? But not everyone who watches movies plays games. And I probably fall a little bit into that camp, at least modern games, you know, like I played Super Nintendo most of my childhood. That, that dates me, right? So um, uh yeah, I'd say I, it's probably the other way. I think games people probably make probably easily come into into cinema. I don't know if um, cinema guys can go into games, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't thought about that one. So. Speaking of that up and coming generation that's kind of in both of these worlds, what advice would you give to a young VFX artists who are kind of coming up in the game? Uh, young VFX artists in visual effects, I would say it's a booming 
And I can't, you know, I don't want to use expletives, but holy cow is the industry booming right now. Not just the film industry or television industry, but VFX. Um, there are so many shows in production, so many studios, you know, competing right now. And I think that cinema world is gradually more and more realizing how integral visual effects are even to the rom-com, you know, um, uh, it's involved in everything. And, uh, you know, on, on com- I don't think people realize, but even on like comedy sitcoms, um, maybe not sitcoms like the ones in front of audiences, but shows that are like, um, like the Goldbergs or something. Right? I have a friend who's a supervisor in that. And I remember having lunch with him be like, oh, well, what work is on the Goldbergs? And and he was just like, are you kidding me? There's so much stuff. Basically, they read, they, uh, I mean, I shouldn't use that show, but in general, a lot of shows, especially for comedy, will, um, you know, take two different takes of different actors, you know, and, and splice them together, even if the camera's moving and they'll get their timings just right so that the joke just lands a little bit sharper, you know, um, or uh, um, manipulate, you know, even like slowing down footage so that there's even more of a delay or someone's thinking a little longer before the other person reacts. I mean, we all know so much about comedy is timing and that has now entered visual effects where we um, do massive amounts of timing tweaks, uh, which is it's still pretty difficult to do because, um cameras are moving you got to make it all match up so what's my point my point is visual effects is in so in demand in every department whether you're and not just creative you know if if you love visual effects and you love sci-fi but you're not really an artist but you're organized the, the visual effects producers and production managers and coordinators and the, the, the organizing people, right? That the less creative people, the more schedule time and money. And, you know, those jobs are just as much in demand, you know, PAs, we can't even find like enough entry level guys to, you know, run around on set. Like it's, it's, it's incredible how visual effects editors at a very unique position where you've got to be both like a super avid as an avid, the software editing person, but you've also got to know like After Effects and and how visual effects works. Coveted uh, position right now because we can't find enough people. They're, they're so in demand right now. So good time to be in the business. Don't waste time. Just watch a lot of cool movies, be inspired, and don't wait for someone to give you a job you know, go out with your iPhone and shoot some videos, add some visual effects to it, make a demo reel and get hired to work like on a Marvel film. Like it's crazy right now how many people we need in the business. Yeah. And just going full circle, like you said in the beginning, you know, just getting, getting ourselves out there, getting our stuff out there. Yeah. And luck does not, you got to make your own luck, right? Is that a lame quote from Titanic? Um, (laughs) But, you know, like, 
you know, this is cheesy too, but you have to roll the dice to win something, right? You gotta, you gotta be out there. You gotta expose yourself to the possibility of luck happening. If you sit at home and stay in, you're never going to like, do you, you know, the world and life is all about chaos and chaos creates random occurrences and random encounters. And, and uh, you gotta put yourself into the position for chaos to happen. Well, I don't know uh, what's a better piece of advice to end this thing on. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I mean, it's inspiring and impressive for me anytime I get the opportunity to speak with someone who's operated at such a high level in such a competitive, crazy industry. So thank you for joining us. And I can't wait to see what happens in the second half of the season. Oh, it will be um, very exciting. We've got... uh, one, we appreciate so much how much people love the show and, oh my gosh, the stuff people have picked up on. And uh, we are trying to honor all those things and just build upon and um, well aware of what, uh, not just the expectations, but well aware, I think, of, of the love and um, how much we want to, you know, honor that. And um and get more of it. So we're, we're excited and we're just getting started. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Do you have a, do you want to plug anything else or say anything at your social media or anything like that? So people can see cool stuff. You know, it's been interesting. I've never been a social media guy, but after this year with all the never stuff, it's been kind of interesting. So if you want to have any more questions about visual effects or, you know, career advice or anything, or just having questions, I'm, uh, at the Johnny Han, J-O-H-N-N-Y-H-A-N. And you'll find me there. Thank you so much. This has been the conversation with Johnny Han. Thank you for tuning into the Nevers podcast and we'll see you next time. Great. Thank you. Have a good one. episode of the nevers podcast was written researched produced and edited by matthew at culture inject studios 